Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Solari Gentile. Solari is an award-winning and prolific writer who has graced Final Draft with her appearances many times over the years. Her role in Sinclair Mystery Series transports the reader back into the interwar period of the 1930s, and today Solari is joining me to discuss her ninth novel in the series, All the Tears in China. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, and each week we feature an Australian writer exploring their latest work. The Great Conversations podcast is a chance for you to hear more of these discussions and delve deeper into the books that you love. Now, the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is fast approaching its first birthday. In that time, we've put out nearly 50 episodes of new books, as well as bonus episodes featuring festivals, awards, and publishers. I'd love to know which show is your favourite, and the way I want you to tell me is by voting with your ears. Go back and give your favourite episode, or episodes, another listen. When our first birthday arrives, I'm going to announce some of the most loved episodes that have collated over our first year, and let everyone know about the great Australian writing that's out there to be discovered. Now, book nine of the Roland Sinclair Mysteries sees Roland and his Scooby gang of crime-fighting artist friends travelling to Shanghai. Ostensibly, they're there to represent the Sinclair family's interests at trade negotiations, but it also helps to get Roland out of Australia, where he is only one step away from being disappeared by the various conservative forces that he's crossed. In 1935 Shanghai, Roland discovers a world larger than that he has ever known. And when a body is discovered in his penthouse, Roland will discover that his family fortune and connections only get him so far, and he cannot rely on his older brother to pull the strings when he's in a jam. Join me and discover the latest in the Roland Sinclair mysteries, All the Tears in China. Dear listener, we are back to enjoy one of my favourite Australian series today. The Roland Sinclair Mysteries are now into their ninth adventure. But if you are yet to discover Roland Sinclair and his Scooby gang of artistic lefty crime-solving friends, I have Roland's creator, Solari Gentile, joining me on the phone. Hello, Solari. Welcome. Would you do us the honour of introducing Roland Sinclair? Hello, Andrew. Uh, absolute pleasure to be here, as always. Uh, Roland Sinclair is a, a young man, a, a gentleman artist of the 1930s. He ha- walks that fine line between uh, the conservatism of his establishment background and family and the artistic left-wing bohemian sets that he is naturally attracted to amongst his friends. Um, he has... Uh, um, well, the unlucky distinction of coming across dead bodies wherever he goes um, and and being a young man who actually cares about people and cares about justice, he finds himself embroiled in the solution of these murders from time to time. If he were a political party, he would have suffered a swing against him because while he moves in conservative circles, he is just far too much to the left for them. And And all the tears in China, the ninth Roland Sinclair mystery sees Roland, Edna, Milt and Clyde embarking for Shanghai. Now, ostensibly Roland is there to represent the Sinclair's business interests at trade negotiations, but it also doesn't hurt that it gets him out of the spotlight and out of the way of the conservative forces that have resented his recent interferences. Um, So there's no spoilers for anyone who is yet to read 
a dangerous language, which was uh, number eight. And uh, I would highly recommend getting back and, and checking out the mysteries. But we're in Shanghai. Now, this is Roland Sinclair. So, of course, everything goes smashingly. And they definitely do not discover a dead body in their palatial penthouse suite that throws <laughs> Roland under a cloud of suspicion with very few friends and a growing collection of enemies. Um, so, Larry, if we can, can we start with Shanghai? Because this is a city that's transformed itself numerous times over since the late 1935 setting of All the Tears in China. It, it has, however, remained this financial and trade hub in the world. What did this location offer for you and offer for Roland uh, in, in his ongoing adventures? Well, actually, the, the decision to move to Shanghai was based, um, for me, uh, quite politically in some ways. I, I realised that through the Roland Sinclair's, Sinclair series, what I had been doing is looking at that period between the wars, uh, the 1930s. And, and part of my interest in that is to look at how we got to the place where we got to with World War II. But um, I also realized that in looking for those answers, I had always turned my eyes west. And so Roland had always, had been to to London, and he'd been to America, and of course a lot of the uh, the action in the series occurs in Australia. And yet there was this other half of the world, which was equally being affected by the growing uh, move towards the right, uh, the growth of fascism, um, and and the undercurrents of turmoil that came through that. And of course in China, uh, we we saw purges of communists in the in the early 30s we saw we we see the japanese coming into manchuria and absolutely murdering thousands and thousands and thousands of people and yet you know as is as is so typical even today quite often what happens in the east is not as personally motivating mm. for us uh, as you know, some, some tragedy in the West. And so I very intentionally wanted to move Roland's eyes to the East uh, and have him consider what was going on there. And Shanghai seemed to be uh, the appropriate place for him to go because not only is it a city that's physically in China, but it's a really interesting city in that it's a treaty port. And so it, it embodies the world within it. Um, so you have French quarters and German quarters, the British quarters, the Japanese quarters. And, and so it seemed like the perfect location to actually have a look at how the East and West were, were wrestling with this change in the political climate. Yeah, with, with our eyes in 1935 on what's going to be happening only a few years in Europe, it's easy to forget that only half a generation away, China is going to be changed irrevocably and... The, we're still feeling the reverberations of that, um, especially. I mean, as we speak, we've got um, we've got America and China sort of wrapping themselves, or Donald Trump trying to wrap himself into a, what he's calling a trade war against probably one of the the biggest power in the world that's emerged since 1949. Exactly, and even in the 30s, trade was used as a weapon. Mm. So when Roland. Uh, goes over to China. What is in contemplation is an embargo against the Japanese. Mm. 
that the UN is putting forward. Uh, and certainly there was a great deal of ramping up in trade because in case in case that happened. Mm-hmm. And we see those sort of um, ripples occur whenever there's talks of uh, trade wars, uh, even nowadays. But it was it was. An interesting, a very interesting time because, you know, you, you, in 1935, um, uh, the Mao was on the long march. Mm. Uh, the, in, in Shanghai, the, the communists had been purged. They had been gathered up and murdered. Mm. Um, and, and you had this country that was uh, a host to the colonial, great colonial powers, and yet the Chinese people in Shanghai were almost second-class citizens in their own country. Um, and so you had this bubbling, fermenting uh, cauldron of turmoil about to erupt. Um, and so it seemed to me <laughs> like the perfect place to have a look. Now, this feels like less of a black-and-white book philosophically, if, if you could describe anything about the first eight books as black-and-white. What effect did taking uh, my affectionate name, the Scooby Gang, uh, out of the bubble of Australian political and social discourse, what did that challenge you to do with their personal development? Well, I think in a lot of ways the personal development um, kind of matches my own or my own learning about how things um how things are in the world, and quite often, you you think that you know uh, a topic until you change your perspective and look at it from another point of view. Uh, and certainly, I didn't know a great deal about the history of Shanghai or or China at the time before I started this book, and I was I was quite surprised to see how much I didn't know. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that Roland needs to understand or what I I hope that he would understand out of this book is that his his perspective has been in a bubble mm. um and one of the things that I wanted him to address is that there, there, there's a particular point and it's probably not well it probably is a spoiler but never mind uh where uh one of the other characters asks him why he feels that the Nazis and what they're doing to uh, the socialists and the communists and the Jewish people in Germany, why that's his fight more than any other. Mm-hmm. Why he cares more about that than he does about the Chinese that were killed in Manchuria or the American blacks mm-hmm. uh, or even the Aboriginal people in his own country. And it was a it was a question that was asked of Roland. I didn't know the answer and I still don't think I know the answer. And I I just think it's one of those things that people need to address. Everybody chooses their fight. Um, And sometimes we choose our fight for a reason that's just simply because we're not exposed to anything else Mm. uh, or we don't realize what else is out there. Uh, It doesn't mean that we'll change our mind and we'll stop fighting for it. It just means that we have to be aware that everything that seems to be everything for us may, may only be a small part uh, of a greater story. Um, so it was, it was those sort of things that I wanted him to grapple with. Interestingly, in All the Tears in China, I don't think he finds an answer. Mm. Um, and I don't think there is an answer to that. I certainly haven't found it for myself. I don't know why some uh, causes are my causes and other causes aren't. It just seems to be something that happens. 
I think one of the things that endears us to Roland, but probably also problematizes him, is he he at least I think very much sees himself as a bit of a, a white hat type hero in the old mold, and and I, I noticed that as the pace and the action mount in all the tears in China. Roland finds he's he's adrift from the money and the influence his family name usually afford him. And those are the things that let him be a white hat hero because he has this enormous privilege behind him that always always cushions him, even though you, you do knock him about a bit. Um, and in, in the book, he, he has to be really careful about who to trust. I noticed it also gave you a chance to expand his entourage. Tell me about what bringing in characters like Wing brought to the story for you. Wing? Well, I was actually... Um because I was in China, I was very cognizant of not writing a book that was entirely about non-Chinese characters mm. and just using Shanghai as a, a pretty backdrop. Mm. Um, so I, I, I wanted to actually look at what a young man in in China might have, or in Shanghai might have looked like and what he might have been like. And certainly one of the things that surprised me is that even in the 30s, there was a a generation of young men in China who had been sent abroad to study, who had gone to Ivy League schools. Mm. Um, and they were the, the the new rich. And then they had come back to China um, to to work and to be captains of industry. Um, so, so Wing is a highly educated man. He speaks several languages. He is working as a butler in uh, in the cafe hotel where Roland is staying, primarily because... Um, he he may or may not have communist affiliations, and there is a certain protection afforded people who work for Victor Sassoon, who is the the owner of that hotel. Um, and so he he becomes um, a sidekick or a friend, and he has his own story. Um, I'm I'm quite I'm quite um, reticent about making sidekicks that only exist uh, or only have their story in relation to Roland Sinclair. So he certainly has his own life and his own, his own story to live. And, uh, of course, he has, his, uh, uh, he has a nemesis who becomes a friend in the form of Ranjit Singh, mm. who is a thick man uh, and a taxi driver who, who Roland also manages to adopt uh, while in the middle of a caper. Um, and uh, Ranjit Singh equally distrusts um, Wing Zhao, and um, and they and they proceed. But the two of them, in some ways, give Roland a foothold into Shanghai's culture because he's he's moving blind. He's in this new city, new culture. He doesn't know what he's doing, and sometimes you just need a local to tell you, "Do that, don't do that." So another important element of the novel are the ways that Roland has to check himself and also adjust to being part of these multiple intersecting interests that are all converging on the world stage in Shanghai. We've talked about Roland's bubble in Australia. Um, But here I want to bring in in the violence, because you you do good violence and you do good violence to Roland. For a moment there, I thought you were actually going to let him off the hook and then... um, and then, wow, you really ramped it up. Was it was it difficult to strike a balance 
uh, with oh, Roland. Oh, you know, after every single book, I get letters from people berating me about how hard I am on Roland. Are you, worried, are you, are you actually worried that you've you've maybe given him a concussion and, like, at some point you're going to have to write the results? Of well, I'm, I'm really careful. I don't give him head injuries. <laughs> <laughs> you will see that I don't give him head injuries. He's too, he's um, too, he's too pretty. <laughs> You'd have to answer to Edna. <laughs> yes. Well, well, I think part of um, it's it's interesting and it's endearing and it's quite lovely that Roland has a a bevy of fans who are so motivated to protect him that they will write to me to ask me to be kinder to him in the next novel. Um, but one of the things that I keep saying to them is that Roland knew when he signed up for the gig that he was going to be a crime fiction hero. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's a rough gig. <laughs> and uh, and um, nobody, nobody wants to read about Roland sitting safely in the parlour knitting. It, it struck me in all the tears in China, though, he's throwing himself into conflicts where, again, he's he's not assured of being the white hat hero. Even in Even in the sort of he's escaping and he goes into a bar without without really thinking that his his veneer as a gentleman would perhaps not protect them and there was a sense that even though Edna was under threat he was a little well, he was quite a bit in the wrong in the in the way that that all washed out his recklessness really didn't serve him well no and you know the, the thing is that Roland is not a a perfect character mm. he is not as a as a human being, someone who always makes the right decision. Mm. And certainly in this situation where he's in a new country, he hasn't got the usual structures that he can rely on behind him. Um, He's in a place where people actually don't care who Sinclair is. Mm. Um, So he's probably just a little bit wrong-footed the whole book. Um, he He has an impulsive need to go in and protect Mm. Uh, but he sometimes should um, stop and think about the consequences of his actions and how they're going to play out in the long run. And certainly that's something that's just part of his development and part of his growing up um, mm. that, he, uh, that he needs to learn. In All the Tears in China, he was also thrown off uh, balance by the fact that there was that, or there was the sub-story where there's a threat to Edna. And mm. You know, for him, it's it's difficult, and it's difficult to look at it through uh, modern eyes, where we we understand that women can make their own decisions and protect themselves. Mm. But his overwhelming training as a gentleman of the 1930s was to protect yeah. um, and to stand up for. So it's it's one of those things that he's got to learn about Edna. And hopefully, she's not going to have to shoot him again to uh, make him realise. <laughs> well, if she needs to, she will. <laughs> now. Coming back to the the group at large, Milton and Clyde's politics have always featured in the in the book's broader philosophy, um, and uh, as part of as part of I guess our heroic team, we're we're invited to see the nobility that's inherent in their socialist sensibilities, at least. But in all the tears, we have an existential crisis brewing. Both men are confronted with the murky realities of of what's happening. Uh, to, to communists in China. In Russia. Well, yeah, what's what's happening, what, what communists are doing, but then also what's happening to communists in other parts of the world. And I, it, 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 they're troubled. I see some of the, 
the brashness uh, sort of taken away from them. And, and much as Roland is, is forced to confront his ideology, so are they. How do you see these personal conflicts playing out in those relationship dynamics for the four? Well, look, it's, it's an interesting... In, in some ways, Milton and Clyde have served as Roland's conscience, mm. uh, or at least his social conscience. He's always been a, a, a very principled man, and he, he's always, you know... Um, valued and held on to things like loyalty and friendship and, and and kindness. But really, in terms of social principles, it's been Clyde and Milton uh, who have been his social conscience. Mm. But what uh, Milton is faced with in this is, is the what, what is happening to communism um, in China and around the world, but more so what communism is doing. So mm. the... Uh, the uh, home or the the center of uh, the communist utopia, Russia, is not cloaking itself in mm. glory at all. And certainly there is a, a Jewish doctor who wrote this when Milton initially speaks to him, he's assuming that the man has fled Germany. Um, and, he, and he mentions that there are just as many people fleeing Russia. Mm. And so it's, a, it's an interesting... A look at how dictatorship on both sides uh, can lead to the same ends. And totalitarianism is totalitarianism, regardless of whether it comes from the left or the right. Um, in terms of how it affects their... I mean, I, I think one of the wonderful things about this four is that they have allowed each other to be. So Milton doesn't ever try to turn Roland into a communist, mm. and he doesn't ever try to turn them away however convenient it would be for each of them to pull the other one a little bit closer to their own ideology. I think Roland has to, uh, in this book, Roland has to try and define or, or defines more uh, more closely where he actually stands, who he is. And he's, he's not a communist. He's never been a communist. But there's certain principles that he shares with Milton and Clyde. Mm-hmm. And there's certain underlying morals a certain underlying moral code that he feels is very consistent. He certainly admires them. I think he probably just really feels that they're a bit unrealistic um, in their belief in humanity. And and I, I remember when uh, I remember hearing that old phrase that you know um, anyone who isn't a communist when they're 21 hasn't got a heart. Anyone who's still a communist when they're 30 hasn't got a brain. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and I think it's 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 that tension. Um, as much as you know, uh, Clyde and Milton dream of this communist utopia, and and they seem and they are really idealistic about that. And as much as they call Roland romantic, and mm. he he sees that they have a greater belief in humanity than he does. Could you see? And I guess this is me, you know, very left of field asking about what's hap- what's coming up could you see demoralization or perhaps further challenge even just further challenging to these underlying philosophies causing fractures in the team and what might that mean in future adventures um yes yeah, I, I don't know about that i think fundamentally um they're they're connections or their bonds as friends are probably even stronger 
um, than their bonds or, or, or their, their principles or their social stances. So certainly all of them uh, probably hold loyalty as, as one of the, the fundamental principles of their existence. Um, so that would probably um, belie any, any f- absolute fracturing, but certainly there is going to be tensions as we get closer to the war. Certainly there's going to be, and, and certainly even on a personal level, uh, there will be continued to be tensions between Roland and Edna because he, he's in love with her, what he wants is to be with her, and what she wants is to be free. Mm. Um, so all of those sort of things happen. Now, look, to be honest, that's a really hard question because I don't plot. I have no idea what's going to happen. I just sort of sit down and write, and um, it, it seems to me very much like the characters just tell me what they've been doing. So I find it really hard to guess what will happen in the future. Uh, because I've got no clue as to where the story is going to take them, except for the fact that I have this notion that I will write Roland through the war, and clearly the war is going to have a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Discover, dear listener, where the story takes Solari. I am I am speaking with Solari Gentile. We are discussing book nine in the Roland Sinclair Mysteries. It is called All the Tears in China. Uh, if you are new to the Roland Sinclair Mysteries, then know that you have such a treat ahead of you. Solari, thank you so much for taking the time once again. Absolute pleasure, Andrew. Thank <laughs> you very much for having me. That's it for this great conversation with Solari Gentile. Solari's latest novel is All the Tears in China, and it's out now through Pantera Press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Click subscribe in your favourite podcast app and get a new Great Conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Until then, happy reading.